Let's turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. I want to read verses 28 through 39. Let's hear the Word of God. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. For whom He did foreknow, He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom He did predestinate, them He also called, and whom He called, them He also justified, and whom He justified, them He also glorified. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own Son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, <coughs> or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. May God bless the reading of His Word to us this evening. Well, I think you know that Romans is a, a remarkable epistle, the book of the Bible, used more than any other for the conversion of sinners and for the basics of the gospel. We owe to Romans the Reformation heritage so, so dear to us. So many of the Reformers were converted through reading this book, including the pioneer Martin Luther from Romans 1.17. Now within this book of Romans, the Mount Everest, the, the grandest, greatest, most glorious chapter is Romans 8. Actually in our seminary, and we've got about 100,000 books there, and every single five-page or more entry on one text, so every single sermon and even smaller pieces is filed. And there's more sermons preached in those books on Romans 8 than any other chapter in the Bible. There's something special about Romans chapter 8. It begins with no condemnation in Christ Jesus, which is a tremendous wonder for sinners like us, and it ends with no separation from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's bookended 
by the powerful gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ. And it's packed full with all the idealism of the Christian life. The realism is the end of Romans 7, isn't it? The struggles of Paul in his soul, struggling with indwelling sin. But Romans 8 brings us to the Alps, to the Mount Everest, to the, to the glory of our salvation in Jesus Christ. And particularly, verses 34, 38, and 39 serve as a kind of capstone to reassure us of God's inseparable love in Christ Jesus to sinners like us. So that's my text tonight, and that's my theme tonight, and I want to talk to you about costly love, comprehensive love, and cumulative love from these verses. Let's read them again. 34, 38, 39. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities nor powers, nor things present nor things to come, nor height nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, Paul is absolutely persuaded of what he writes. And he says that there's a love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord that if you are a true believer, you will never ever be separated from, from God's side, no matter how separate you feel from your side from that love. And he bases this bold declaration, he uses the strongest possible Greek word, I am absolutely convinced I am persuaded. He bases that on verse 34. Who is he that will condemn us? And of course, our natural hearts say all kinds of things will condemn us. My flesh will condemn. My, my indwelling sin will condemn. My conscience will condemn. The law will condemn. The, the world will condemn. Every kind of enemy of my soul will condemn. Satan will condemn. But the answer is, is Christ. Is Christ who died. Yea, rather, is risen again. Yea, rather, has ascended on high. Yea, rather, who constantly makes intercession for us every moment of our lives. And in Him, in His steadfast love, His chesed love, as you said in Hebrew, that loyal, covenant-keeping, faithful, unchangeable love, In that is our security. In that is our comfort. In that is our assurance. And that shall never die. Because of what Christ has done, we shall never be separated from His love. I am persuaded. And so this is kind of a, a beautiful capstone to a capstone chapter in a capstone book you might say kind of like the apex of all of Scripture. This is a, a glorious text. There's no separation from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord.
Now, if you comb the Scriptures, of course, there's a lot of grounds upon which Paul makes this profound statement of his own persuasion. Other places in his epistles talk about God's Word and God's promises persuading him. The unchanging character of God that persuaded him. The covenant faithfulness of God that persuaded him. But here, it's particularly this, it is Christ who died, yea, rather is risen again, who sits at the right hand of God, who makes intercession for us. It's like an ascending ladder. And Paul tells us, first of all, then, that it's the costly love of God. Grace is free. Grace is wonderful. God's love is wonderful. But it cost God a price. It cost His Son the price of love, the price of His death. I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way, but just Jesus coming to earth, living here in the smoke of sin and among sinners, devoting 33 years of His life, and living with all the infirmities of our flesh, sin accepted, is amazing love in itself. His traveling to Bethlehem is love incarnate. His tracking and traveling His steps as He went about doing good is love laboring. His visiting the house of Bethany is love sympathizing. His standing by the grave of Lazarus is love weeping. His entering the sufferings of Gethsemane is love sorrowing. His passing on, pressing on to Calvary is love bleeding. You see, the whole scene of his life is but an unfolding of the deep, deep love of Jesus. And Paul is persuaded, you see, that that love is unchangeable, that that love, though costly, you see, cannot be forfeited. Who shall condemn us? Who shall condemn me, he says? Who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord? Nothing can. This costly love is absolutely secure. His pierced hands are the hands that guide the world, that make all things work together for good to them that love God. So Paul is looking at the spiritual realities that God does for us in Jesus Christ. And he's saying on the basis of his sufferings and death, God justifies every sinner who comes to Jesus. And every sinner is freely invited to come to Jesus. So he's persuaded of the incredible, inestimable, eternal, secure value of a dying Savior on the basis of his blood, his love is inseparable. Martin Luther once said, there is so much infinitude in every blood, drop of Jesus' blood because he's not just man, but he's God-man in one person, that one drop of his blood would be sufficient to save a thousand worlds. There is an amazing power in the blood of Jesus. But what a price. What a price. Golgotha, the apex of it all, truly cost 
the Lord Jesus. And at the apex, of the apex of his sufferings, is this profound cry of dereliction. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? You see, Jesus said, I am not alone because the Father is always with me. He knew the Father's continuous love and support and nearness from eternity past. He, he had a oneness with His Father. There never was a sweeter Father, never a more loving Son. They went up from Bethlehem to Calvary together, like Abraham and Isaac going up the mount on Genesis 22. The Father had broken open the heavens and said, This is my beloved Son. Hear ye Him. In Him I am well pleased. But now in this moment where Luther said after spending three hours on his knees trying to comprehend it and then arising and saying God forsaken of God who can understand it? Jesus is forsaken. It's a brand new altogether different experience for him. Forsaken by his own father. No my beloved son breaks open the heavens now. No angels come to comfort him. No friend looks at him and says, I understand. No father holds out his hand and supports him. Or so it felt. Jesus is forsaken. He trods the winepress alone. No dove descends on the holy mount to convey and symbolize peace. No angel sent to strengthen him. No well done, good and faithful servant resounds in his ears. No rod and staff are given him as he walks through the valley of the shadow of death. No grace is extended. No favor is shown. No comfort is administered. No content of the cup of his father's wrath is removed. He's in a far country, a strange country, hanging in the naked flame of his father's wrath. No eye gazing upon him in love, saying, we understand. He's rejected by heaven. He's rejected by earth. He's rejected by hell. He's rejected by Jews. He's rejected by Gentiles. He's rejected by the secular world. He's rejected by the religious world. He's rejected by all the powers that be. And he hangs in the midst of them all, naked, cursed, shamed. That's what the forgiveness of your sins cost Jesus. That's what God thinks of your sin. But God was willing to give His only Son to pay that price so you who truly believe in Jesus alone for salvation can be set free. What a persuasion and what a love. The blood, the death of the Son of God. His only Son. My wife and I have one Son. And even though you're friends, I wouldn't, I wouldn't give them to any of you. God gave His only begotten Son to enemies like us, to hell-worthy rebels like us, and to save us 
paid the total price of our salvation himself. So that Jesus had to go through this experience. Instead of love, there's wrath. Instead of affection, there's coldness. Instead of support, there's opposition. Instead of nearness, there's distance. Paul says, I'm persuaded that there's no condemnation because Christ died. Died for sinners. So that nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then you see that costly price was fleshed out in his resurrection. He rose. He's the living Savior. He can apply what he's merited. And he ascends on high. And he lives, ever lives, says Paul, to make intercession for us. So Paul's persuaded, not just by his state of humiliation and his sufferings, but by his state of exaltation and his intercession at the right hand of the Father. And he does that for infinite millions. And yet he treats each child of God as if he were his only child. Now Mary Winslow, a great 19th century, uh, warmly reformed experiential writer, her her son Octavius was was a very famous reformed preacher, but she wrote in her diary, if my Savior had died only for me, I was the only elect in all the world. He would have had to suffer as much as he did to bring in my salvation. The personalness of it, you see. He rose for each one of his own. He ascended for each one of his own. He intercedes for each one of his own. You see, we have the capacity just to think about one or two people at once. But Jesus has the capacity to take in millions at once. He's infinite. And at the same time, to take in each one as if each one were his only child. That's staggering. And so Paul looks at this costly love, and he says, this is a love that's not only grounded in his death, but also grounded in his resurrection. He was raised again, he says, four chapters earlier, for our justification. But then he's ascended on high. So that we might, he might be the firstborn among many brethren. We might be adopted into his family. And he intercedes for us moment by moment, individually. He not only gave his life for us in death, but now he gives his life for us at the right hand of the Father. His work isn't over, but now it's work of exaltation. Now it's work of intercession. Now it's work of preservation. Now it's work through his spirit and by means of his servants and all the spiritual disciplines coming, forming, molding us, conforming us to the image of Christ through his intercession. Have you ever thought about this? That Jesus is keeping you every single second and interceding for you every tick of the clock, tick, tick, he's praying for you, he's praying for you, he's praying for you, he's praying for you, if you're a believer. So Paul says, I'm persuaded. He's going to keep me. He not only merited my salvation through his death, but he keeps my salvation through his life, through his intercession. And that makes his intercession one of the most precious and perhaps the most underrated doctrine in all the Bible. 
because it means no matter what I go through, my salvation is secure. And that's what he goes on then to say in verse 38, 39. You see, that is his comprehensive love. And what he does here in 38 and 39 is he actually gives us four couplets. It's interesting how he does it. He looks around and he says, what things in this life would we fear naturally could separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord? And he brings them together in contrasting couplets. And basically he says this, none of them will do the job. None of them will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's look at them. First couplet, neither death nor life. Neither death? Death? The very definition of death is separation. Death is a separation of soul from body. Spiritual death is a separation of the soul from God. Eternal death is a separation of soul and body from God forever. Death won't separate me from Christ Jesus, my Lord? Does Paul know what he's talking about? Well, of course he does. Have you ever had a loved one die? I'll never forget when my dad died. The sense of separation. He died actually on the pulpit. He just went straight from the pulpit to glory. He had a heart attack. The sense of separation that overwhelmed me when I first saw him dead, I, I can't put into words. So how can Paul... How can Paul say, death will not separate me? The Bible says death separates very friends. True, intimate friends. But Paul says death won't separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why not? Well, because as I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, thou art with me. One old Scottish divine put it this way, death is a wheelchair that rolls me into the presence of the King of Kings where wheelchairs are needed no more. Death won't separate me. It will bring me into Christ's presence and I'll be married to him forever in sin-free Emmanuel's land where all evil's walled out and all good is walled in and I'll be as perfect as he's perfect and I'll be bound to him more intimately than I've ever been bound to him here on earth. Praise God for that. Well, maybe you say, but I'm not so worried about death separating me, but I'm worried about life separating me. Life is challenging. Life is confusing. Life is overwhelmingly busy. Life drags me down. I feel like I'm being led as a sheep to the slaughter all the day long. Well, Jesus is the Lord of life. And you know what? When you get overwhelmed, where do you go? You go to him, don't you? You see, life won't separate you. Jesus will never desert his child, even in their greatest extremity. And even though you think you will be destroyed through the trials coming upon you, even though you say with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I will not bow down before this world's idols, but O king, if the Lord does not spare me, I still will not bow down. Even though you expect to perish sometimes because of the onslaughts of the devil and this world and your own wicked flesh, Jesus says, no man shall pluck them out of my hand. I'll keep you. Nothing in life shall separate you. 
I'll keep you all the way to the end, no matter how great your trials may be. You know, I had a woman in my church who passed away now. She's with the Lord. She was a very sweet, mature Christian. And at one point in her life, she said to me, I think I've been so reconciled with the will of God that whatever he does in my life, I can, I can accept. I just pray for one thing. I pray that I won't get the kind of cancer my mother had because it was just terribly, terribly painful and awful to watch. What did the Lord do? She got that kind of cancer. How did she do? She was closer to the Lord than ever. All except one night. One night, her husband called me at 3 o'clock in the morning and said it's like the devil has gotten hold of her and she's, she's just thrashing and she's, she's feeling overwhelmed. She's feeling bereft of God. And so I came over and I just read Scripture and prayed about six times in a row with her and she, she kind of broke out of a bit in the morning. She was better. Just one night. She felt separated. But she wasn't separated. And you see, then the day came for her last surgery, the last hope. And I was the last one to see her. I asked her how she was doing. I shook her hand. And she shook my hand very hard, as hard as a man would shake your hand. And she said, whether we live, we live unto the Lord, as she gazed right into my eyes. Whether we die, we die unto the Lord's. Whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the Lord's. You see, all of life's trials didn't separate her from the Lord. She made it through the surgery. She died about a month later. She did well. How is it possible? How is it possible that the most painful thing that could possibly happen to you cannot separate you from the Lord? Well, who is he that condemneth? It is Christ who died, yea, rather is risen again, who ascended into heaven, and whoever lives to make intercession for us. That's why. That's why this first couplet doesn't separate us from the Lord. It's because of verse 34 that Paul can be persuaded in verse 38 and 39 of the inseparable love of Jesus Christ our Lord. Then there's a second couplet. Nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers. Principalities and powers are a reference to the devils. In other words, neither angels nor devils. Angels? Why would an angel want to separate you from the love of God. Well, of course they wouldn't. Paul is speaking hypothetically, as he, as, he, as he did in Galatians 1. He said, even if an angel came from heaven, an angel much more powerful than you, trying to persuade you to believe another gospel, don't believe him. Believe the gospel that I preached unto you. So he's speaking that way here, hypothetically. Even if an angel with all his power, and one angel in one night killed 185,000 Assyrians, if a powerful angel comes and should happen, even though an angel would never do it, but should happen to try to tear you loose from the Lord Jesus Christ, remember that Christ is almighty, more powerful than angels. He is God. And why won't you be separated? Even by an angel. Because it's Christ who died. Yea, rather, is risen again. Who's ascended on high and makes intercession for you. But what about the devils? They're, they're fallen angels. They're, they're powerful. Paul says he fought with wild beasts, he writes to the Corinthians, while he was at Ephesus. He tells us to put on the whole armor of God to fight against the devil. He says Christ 
is powerful, more powerful, however, than the devil's. He says, Christ has made a show of them openly. He leads his people captivity captive despite the devils, triumphing over principalities and powers, over spiritual wickedness in high places. Colossians 2.15. My friend, Christ is reigning over all the devils, over all of hell. The devil is not the prince of hell. Christ rules over hell, rules over the devils. Even the devils cannot separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. John Calvin has a beautiful part in one of his uh, commentaries about the devil. He says, sometimes Jesus even uses the devil to be a heavenly physician for us because as the devil tries to destroy us, God turns upside down what the devil's doing and makes it work together for our good and trains and molds and matures, matures us through the trials the devil brings our way. In fact, Christ is the premier example of that, isn't it? Isn't he? When Christ is dying on the cross, Satan is biting his heel, Genesis, Genesis 3.15, seeking to destroy him. But even as he does so, Christ is crushing, Hebrews 2.15, in his death, he destroyed him with the power of death that is the devil. The devil thinks he can separate you from the love of Christ that he can't. Because Christ has merited that love. Christ died, yea, brother, is risen again, is ascended on high, and ever lives moment by moment to make intercession for you. Therefore, no devil can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Third couplet. Neither things present nor things to come. I know what some of you are going to say. Well, th things present. You don't know what's going on in my life right now. It's a mess. I'm overwhelmed. I've got, I've got a prodigal child. I've got, I've got temporary trials in my, in my work that's just overwhelming me. I've got all kinds of temptations. Uh, or I'm overwhelmed with busyness. I'm a mother at home that's just overwhelmed with small children. Or I'm at work and I'm overwhelmed. I'm over my head with what I've got to do. I'm afraid. Or I've got cancer. I just went through a heart attack and I don't know if I'm going to make it through. Things present. They won't separate you. They may discourage you. They may even depress you to some degree. But what do you do with them? You take them to Christ, don't you? You need them more than ever. My parents, I, my dad used to often say as they got older, one thing is sure, as you get older you have more and more needs, he said, but it means you as a husband and wife, you need each other all the more. But that's true spiritually, you see. The more need you have, the more you need Jesus. Things present won't, won't keep you from him. It'll drive you to him. And why? Why won't you just go your own way? Because it's Christ who died. Yea, rather is risen again, who ever lives to make intercession for you. What about things to come? Things to come. I've got all these fears of what's going to happen to me. I heard a Scottish minister once say, there was a huge blacksmith in his congregation who weighed nearly 300 pounds, just a robust, I mean, he was a heavy man, but it was all muscle. He's a solid, big man. He was a blacksmith all his life, and then he got cancer, and he went down to 100 pounds. It's like a shell laying in a bed. 
And uh, he came to see him one day, and the man was just writhing in pain. And he leaned over to me and said, you're having a hard day, aren't you? Oh, yes, he said, but a blessed day. A blessed day, he said. What do you mean? Well, he said, I never understood very much the pain that Christ went through for me until now. In this pain, I'm bound closer to him than ever before. Nothing will separate you. Not the future things. Not the great pain. Not the serious surgery. Not the contract with cancer. Not the loss of a child. Nothing, nothing will separate you from the love of Christ Jesus our Lord. John Newton said, His love in time past forbids me to think that He'll leave me at last in trouble to sink. Each sweet Ebenezer I have in review confirms His good pleasure to help me quite through. And why is that? Because it's Christ who died. Yea, rather, is risen again, is interceding with the Father moment by moment for you. And then the fourth couplet, neither height nor depth, height nor depth. What does Paul mean by that? Well, there can be secular heights. Maybe you get job promotions. Maybe you really become somebody in your company. You climb the corporate ladder. You're important. You're significant. And you think, but will I forget the Lord? Well, will I drown myself in my work? No, no, you won't. God will have ways. He'll give you just the right amount of trials to keep you needy, keep you humble, keep you dependent through your work. And through other things. Or maybe it's spiritual heights. You have some wonderful experiences and you're, you're going to be afraid that, you, that you're going to end up in those. No, you won't. He'll trim you back. He'll cut down your pride. He'll humble you. He'll, 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 he'll see to it that you will decrease and Christ will increase. And he'll keep you dependent on him. God, God's a God of balances. He knows how to balance out our lives. To give us just the amount of afflictions we need to keep us just where he wants us to be so that we learn to live out of the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. But then there's the depths, the depths. The depths of suffering, sickness, tragedy, poverty, the depths of soul distress. Out of the depths have I cried unto thee, O Lord. The depths don't separate me. They draw me to the Lord. Martin Luther said, it's good to be down because when you're down, you can't fall any further than what Christ has come because he comes even below you in order to lift you up. Underneath, underneath are the everlasting arms. Why? Why will no death separate you? Because it's Christ who died and has risen again. And intercedes for you at the Father's right hand. It's all Christ, Christ, Christ. His love is inseparable. His love is assuring. And so Paul says, none of these four couplets, these eight things that you might fear will separate you from Christ, they, they won't do it. And then he summarizes them all. This way, he says, neither height nor depth, nor any other creature. It actually means in the Greek, nor any other thing you can possibly imagine. Nothing is able to separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And the able here 
Actually, it's a Greek word that means equipped. Nothing else is equipped. Nothing else has the power to overpower the Christ, the Almighty God, whose love is unchangeable. Jesus is able to save to the uttermost all those who come unto God by Him. He's equipped as no enemy is equipped to bring you to God and keep you there so that no enemy can take you from Him. No man shall pluck thee, pluck you out of my hands, he says. So that's the comprehensiveness of his love. His love is costly. His love is comprehensive. But then his love is cumulative. This love is absolutely amazing. Notice the last words. Is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Well, this love, <coughs> you see, it's unchangeable covenant love. It's promised love. It's infinite merit love. It's love of union between true believers and, and, and their Savior. It's a love that's grounded in the power of God and Christ. It's a love that is inseparable from the total being of Christ. Every believer is given to Christ, and he will love them with an eternal love. In fact, the whole Trinity is inseparable. Because of Christ, in Christ, through Christ, by Christ, to Christ, inseparable in their love from every single believer. And every person in the Trinity loves you with an infinite love, dear believer. That's why Samuel Rutherford could say, I don't know which person in the Trinity I love the most, but this I know. I love each of them and I need them all. And the result of that confession, you see, is he realizes that all of them love him. That's amazing that God would love you. And Zephaniah says that he rejoices over us with singing. That God would sing over you that he loves you so much. You say, how is it possible? From where does this love come? It comes from the heart of God. And, and what moves the heart of God? Well, the love of God. There's nothing behind the love of God. The love of God is the spring of all the love of God. It's the root cause. It's the primary causation, as Calvin would put it. He always said, don't look to secondary causes and fret, but look to the primary causation. God himself. And he will love you. He'll love you through every prosperity. He'll love you through every adversity. And he'll train and mold you and conform you to Christ and bring you to where he is because, simply because, he loves you forever and ever and ever. And that love will be complete when you get to glory, like a, like a 20 ounce a glass of water that's full, but it will just be cumulative. It will just keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. It will always be full, but it will ever expand. And you'll spend eternity knowing more and more and more and more and more of the oceans of his love. That love that Paul said, you can't know the depth, you can't know the breadth, you can't know the height of the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That love, you will swim in the ocean of that love, that infinite love, forever and ever and ever. And nothing shall separate you from it. Well, I want to close with just three thoughts. I want to say to you, first of all, that this love has three qualities that show its cumulativeness that we need to meditate on more than we do. The first is this. <coughs> it's superabounding love. It's superabounding love. 
God loves his people lavishly. God gives the best he could find and the best he has, his only begotten son, for the worst he could find, a hellworthy sinner like you and me. The best for the worst. That's the gospel. That's amazing. He spared not his own son. He, God makes a supreme commitment with his own son. He holds nothing back, nothing in reserve. He pours out his best for the worst to bring the worst to the best in everlasting, superabounding love. He didn't love you because you were lovable. He loved you because you were unlovely. No, not really that either. He just loved you because he loved you. Because it was sovereign will to love. That's amazing. He brought you into his own domain and he caused you to swim in the infinity of the ocean of his love. You put your toes in. Then your body in. And as you grow and mature, you see, you swim near the shore of this love. But in eternity, you'll wade out into the ocean. Forever and ever. And you'll never, you'll never be able to, to drain the ocean of that love. Charles Spurgeon says in one of his sermons, it's like a fish going in the ocean and being worried, being worried that there won't be enough water in the ocean for it to swim in. And Spurgeon says, just drink to your heart's content, fish. There'll be no end to the water in the ocean. You see, there's no end to the love of Christ. In, and through him, the love of the Father, the love of the Son, and the love of the Spirit. Super abounding love, cumulatively, forever. And secondly, and closely related to this, this is an overflowing love, an outgushing love that flows out of the very heart of God. And that love is most transparent, as we saw at the beginning of this sermon, at the cross. No one can stop the outgushings of God's love the overflowing love from the core of his being to hellworthy sinners because it's all transparent at the cross because it's Christ who died and it's transparent now as he intercedes for you at the Father's right hand, moment by moment caring for you, loving you. That love is amazing. You know, if you have someone in this life that loves you, you love the consistency of that love, don't you? And even though that love isn't perfect, it's beautiful to have a loving spouse or a loving parent, someone who's always ready to give you a loving smile. Uh, I'm blessed. I'm blessed with that with my wife. But my mother was that way as well. Probably two of the, the two kindest people I've ever known in my life. So I'm really blessed. There's always a smile. There's always a token, either in words directly or in facial expressions. I love you. My son, I love you. My husband. What a blessing to be loved. But you see, with God, it's perfect, it's supreme, it's overflowing. It comes naturally from the heart of God. God is love. And he loves unspeakably. Cumulatively, we will enjoy that forever and ever, if we're true believers. And then thirdly, and this one will surprise you. In fact, I wouldn't, dare, I wouldn't dare use this word if the Bible didn't use it. Reverently speaking, the love of God 
is not only superabounding and overflowing, but it appears, it appears, I say, to be foolish love. Now hang in there with me. I wouldn't use that word if God doesn't use it. We're prone to cry out, you see. When you look at our when you, we look at ourselves, oh God, how foolish, how foolish I am. But how foolish thou art to love a sinner like me. How do you, how do you dare, Lord, to love someone like me who's so inconsistent, so fickle, so changeable? Don't you know, Lord, that to, to love me is like throwing love pearls before swine. I'm, I'm going to trample them underfoot. Lord, don't you fear that if you pour out your heart for a sinner like me, that I'll throw your love back into your face. I'll trample, I'll trample upon the blood of your son. The Bible puts it this way. The wisdom of men is foolishness with God. But says Paul, the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. You see, he's saying, the, he's saying the foolishness of God's amazing giving love can never be comprehended by human wisdom. Had others treated you the way you've treated God, you would never show them mercy. You would never show them love. You would refuse to cast your pearls before swine. But God dared to cast the pearl of great price in the pathway of the kind of filthy, wretched, sinful people that we are. He was foolish enough in his infinite wisdom to decide to bring glory to himself and the son of his love by making his son the mediator and savior of a great multitude of rebels and sinners that no man can number. Therefore, I am persuaded that nothing shall be able to separate me from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because he died, and he rose again, and he intercedes into heaven, ascends into heaven, intercedes for me. This is cumulative, eternally cumulative love. But my dear friend, if you don't know this Savior, if you don't know this Savior, you're not in that stream of love if Christ is not number one to you, if Christ is not your all and in all, if he's not what makes you thrive, if he's not your life, if you can't say for me to live is Christ, if he's a stranger to you, the worst thing you can do with your life is reject his invitations, even this invitation right now, to come unto him that you might have life. There's nothing Jesus hates more than a rejection of the blood of his own son. When he was on earth, he looked around, didn't he? And was grieved with anger at the hardness of the hearts of those who rejected him. Don't reject the Son of God. Don't reject him. He that has not the Son has not life, the Bible says, but the wrath of God abides on him. The reverse of love the wrath of God abides on him. You flee to the love of God now, immediately, with all your sin, and cast yourself as a sinful, rebellious, proud, self-righteous sinner at the feet of Jesus, at the foot of the cross, 
and cry out, Son of David, have mercy on me. Receive me and love me as you promised to do for every poor coming sinner. But if you do know him and you do know this love, well, go out and live it. Go out and live it fully. Also to others. And say with Isaac Watts, were the whole realm of nature mine that were a present far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Amen. Let's pray. Great God of heaven, we thank Thee so much for the superlative love of a triune God. We thank Thee, Father, for the giving of Thy Son. We thank Thee, Son of God, for giving Thyself. And we thank Thee, Spirit of God, for Thy loving patience in working salvation, taking the things of Christ and revealing them to us. Lord God, help us to swim more deeply, more profoundly, more sweetly in the ocean of Thy inseparable love and build our assurance of that love, and that we may respond to that love by loving every unconverted person as a mission field and may become evangelists of love to others to share the gospel with them. Please don't let us deceive ourselves and think, Lord, that we are thy children when thou art not number one in our lives. Help us not to presume based on mere head knowledge that we are believers, but work that love in our hearts, that telltale sign of love that makes us know in whom we have believed and be assured and persuaded that nothing shall separate us from thy love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.